Okay, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Under the Wire, your home for suppressed and censored information about vaccination and health. Tonight, we have a very special guest that I've wanted to bring onto the show for some time. I met him very briefly when I was at the VIE event in Washington, D.C. in October 2019, just before COVID craziness hit. And um, I'm very glad that he's been able to come onto the show. His name is Dr. Shiva. And um, he is, he calls himself a polymath, which is a very interesting word uh, from a, a non-mathemagician such as myself. Um, and he has a broad range of experience in many fields of science, mathematics, and politics. And we're going to have a very, very interesting discussion tonight. So without further ado, I'm going to welcome Dr. Shiva to the show. Hello, how are you? Good. How are you, Meryl? I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for joining yeah. us so early in the morning on a Sunday from the United States. Um, I appreciate that. Now, um, I have been doing a little bit of research into some of the things that you've been involved with over the years. And as I said, for someone so young, you've certainly done an awful lot of, of different things, uh, had your fingers in a lot of pies and a lot of experiences. I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about how you became interested in the whole health issue, how you became aware of the difference between mainstream medicine, which most people uh, know quite well, and the natural therapies that you've been involved in. So, and we're getting a lot of people uh, here from around the world saying hello. Well, well you know, um, the word that I wanna share with people I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Are you or no? No, no, I'm not hearing it. Yeah, yeah. So I think the main thing I want to share with people is the the word that you're going to hear throughout the next probably hour and hour and a half, based on how long we want to have this discussion, is a word called systems. And everyone listening should recognize this simple truth: in 2021 or in the 21st century, if you don't have a scientific understanding of systems, we will always be abused. So that's where I want to lay down the groundwork. And my mission in life is to be a catalyst to educate people on a systems approach. What is systems thinking? Um, what does it mean to see the world as systems? And how, why is that important? There is a fundamental science that runs everything in the universe, and it's called systems theory. Um, it, in the modern world, it dates back to the 1930s with the development of a field called cybernetics. But uh, my research shows that the fundamental understanding of systems goes all the way back to probably 10 to 20,000 years. And that's been my journey. And once you understand the fundamental concepts of systems, you can use it to understand everything in nature, be it your body as a system, be it politics as a system, be it the human cell as a system, or even things that even, even, you know, at, at all different scales. It's a scalable knowledge. And that is what my life journey has been about. But without the understanding of systems, we will never get to real health. We will never understand what real freedom is, and we'll never understand what real science is. You'll always be misled by the left and the right, by, you know, uh, pro and anti on any issue. Um, you'll, you won't understand that the body is an interconnected system. The ankle bone is connected to the foot bone. Now, this interconnective aspect of the universe, that it, it's, you cannot understand it by looking at molecules and genes or going down and breaking up the world into a bunch of parts. 
you have to have a different science. It's called a science of understanding the interconnections, and that's where system science comes in. So the reason this is important is that, you know, I grew up, you asked my background, Marilyn, you know, I grew up in a world, um, I experienced this, you know, this is not something that I need someone to tell me about. It is not something that's uh, theory. I grew up in a world in, in India where my uh, family and I were considered low caste untouchables, it was the Indian caste system, where there was a hierarchy. And it was more than just a hierarchy, it was racism on steroids, meaning what where you were born into, which family determined your vocation for the rest of your life. If you were born into a family of carpenters, you were supposed to be a carpenter. If you were coconut pickers, you were supposed to be coconut pickers. And the government even, you know, um, had this regulated. Um, and if you were a Brahmin, you know, then you got all the uh, things of education or if you were a business person, etc. So that's the environment that I grew up in. And the fact that my parents made it out of that was one in a trillion. So as a child, as a four-year-old kid, I experienced the inequities of this, and I was fascinated why this even existed, hurt, but also deeply fascinated by this thing called the caste system. You see, so I was forced to get politicized because of who I was and the environment I was in at a very young age. So I studied everything in politics, revolutionary politics, left-wing, right-wing, as a, starting as a child. So I didn't have any liberal, quote-unquote, liberal um, you know, prejudices, I won't read this, right? I will consider these people heroes or, or you know, right-wing, uh, you know, um, constraints. I looked at everything. So that led me to a political understanding. But separate from that, I also grew up in, in a India where my grandmother, you know, a third of my life I spent in a small village with my grandmother and my grandparents were poor village farmers. And my grandmother practiced a a traditional system of Indian medicine called Siddha, S-I-D-D-H-A, which is typically practiced in South India. And that system of in, uh, medicine, some people say, dates back 20,000 years. And in that system of medicine, my grandmother would, first of all, observe you, okay? Most doctors don't even have time to look at their patients anymore. I'm not sure how the Australian medical system is, but it's true in the U.S. medical system. It's exactly but my grandmother. Yeah, they have 15 minutes and all they're watching is the computers. But my grandmother was a village shaman, the healer, you know, poor village. I mean, you have no roads, no electricity. Um, it's quite actually beautiful. Um, but in that world, my grandmother was a village healer. She would observe your face. 40, 50 people would line up at her home. She would figure out your constitution. Then she would figure out the particular mixture of herbs or massage that was right for you, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. All right. And I saw her empirically heal people. So I was fascinated how this woman who had no degrees, you know, tattoos all over her arms, um, worked 16 hours, and she would never charge for this because that was the ethos. So I was, so as a kid, this was my formative years. And they say about between zero to five years is when a lot of your, uh, you know, your, your anchor is set. So that's what I grew up in. So when my parents emigrated to the United States in 1970, we settled in, you know, working class neighborhoods. But I knew the difference between what I had come to and where I, I came from. And I also grew up in working class neighborhoods. People who taught me how to paint and landscape. I always had a job working. I talked to any of my friends since I was a kid, played baseball, was a pretty good athlete. But I was still very fascinated by medicine and politics. And by the time I was 14, I got a full-time job working as a research fellow, as a 14-year-old kid at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, 
where predominantly African-American, most white people are, are still afraid to go to Newark, okay, still one of the poor cities. But in that small medical college, I was given an opportunity. The school systems changed the rules, so I had some high school courses to finish. The year before, I had a chance to go to New York University in a very special program. I was fortunate to be one of 40 students selected where I learned computer science. I learned how to program large mainframe computers. And so I got a full-time job. And in that medical school, I had two challenges. One was to use my understanding of math and physics and computing to see if I could understand sudden infant death syndrome. And the other small task was that I convert the old-fashioned inner office mail system to the electronic version, which no one had connect, converted, you know, the inbox, outbox, folders. And I did that in 50,000 lines of code. I named it email, created that term as a 14-year-old kid and the technology before I came to MIT. And I ended up getting the first United States copyright for email, recognizing me as the inventor of email, when at that time, that was the only way to protect software. Patents weren't even being allowed by the Supreme Court. Before I came to MIT, and it was only many years later when my mom was dying that all of that artifacts go into the Smithsonian, 33 years later, and it created this huge quote-unquote controversy. It was racist, frankly. The thought of a 14-year-old kid inventing email was racist and elitist, castist, because I had done many things at MIT, invented many things, and I was on the front page for doing that. But when it went into the Smithsonian, the level of abuse that was unleashed, and a guy who had already earned four degrees was a Fulbright scholar, calling me this curry-stained Indian should be beaten and hanged, things like that in the United States. Wow. Because the truth was that email was not invented at MIT or Silicon Valley or by the military. It was invented in a small medical college in New Jersey by a child trying to solve a civilian problem, not trying to exchange text messages for military communications. That's not what email is. Email was trying to help a 14-year-old kid helping women who most of these old white men thought were dumb and stupid and couldn't use a computer. I didn't. And I was helping them move from the old-fashioned typewriter, from the, from the typewriter to the keyboard. Yeah. That's what email was. It was, a liberal, lib it was a first technology that allowed everyday people to participate. And that's what, that was done by a 14-year-old kid. And so, that's amazing. That I have to say, it is... Um, it, I have a love-hate relationship with email, and if you saw my inbox, you would know exactly why. But um, I am well, Everyone says that. They said they want to kill me. When I, <laughs> I did an article. Um, Dr. Shiva, how could you? <laughs> well, but, Wall Street Journal had me write this interesting article on the 125th anniversary of innovation. Um, and I said, you know, I said most people when I say I created email say they want to kill you. But it's an interesting thing because what ended up happening was we all became secretaries. Mm. Um, and we, you know, it's an issue. But anyway, in that medical school, I the, the thing that I was actually interested in, email was actually an accidental thing I did. The thing I was really interested in was understanding um, applying computers to biology. In this case, looking at, um, at that time, um, the university in Newark, the Rutgers branch of it, had some of the best sleep data, 48-hour um, continuous sleep data of babies from Montefiore Hospital who had sustained apneas. Apneas when the baby stops breathing. Yeah. So they would have sleep patterns and babies actually have six states of sleep. Um, adults have five. Um, and when these, so you had sleep patterns and you also knew at the point the baby had the apnea. So what I was doing is looking at when the baby stopped breathing to look back at what was the sleep 
patterns. So maybe the baby was going through certain sleep step patterns that, you know, onset the apnea. So that's what uh, I was doing. And I ended up publishing paper uh, later on about that. Um, but I'd love to ask that was, you a question about that because um, yeah. I don't know if you have heard much about the connection between sudden infant death syndrome and um, infant vaccination, but I'm wondering if that was ever something that entered the uh, hypothesis at that time regarding why ba certain babies were having um, apnea uh, at that time, you know, why they would have incidents of apnea. Was there ever a question about whether vaccinations might have been linked to that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, what I do remember at that time um, was there was, they called it idiopathic, right? Meaning they don't know what causes it. So that's where we're looking at sleep patterns because sleep and your circadian physiology. So the circadian uh, physiology, it's related to your endocrine system. There's a theory that, you know, there's something called the pineal gland, which is in the Hindu system, you call it the third eye, right? Um, but it is a gland. And some people believe the pineal gland, which is right behind your two eyes, right in the middle here, but inside, right? Uh, it is considered to be the master controller of your entire endocrine system. And the, why am I talking about this? The reason I'm talking about this is that the system of sleep, right? Your sleep states is controlled by the endocrine system, circadian physiology. And if that physiology is perturbed, right, disturbed, you're gonna have wacky sleep patterns. Okay, so at that time, there was some discussion. You have to remember, I was a 14, 15 year old kid at the time, so, but I have a pretty good memory. There was some discussion about the fact that there seemed to be a high correlation about um, uh, kids who had grown up in obviously poor neighborhoods, right? Uh, poor backgrounds. Um, SIDS did not seem to affect people broadly. Um, now, one of the things we do need to understand, this is in the 70s, right, 78. Uh, I haven't seen the stats lately, but um, some of these um, vaccines initially were tested among poor people, right? They weren't tested broadly among everyone. Um, they used, as I understand it, people should go do the research more on this, I, you know, we did clinical trials, not on, you know, rich white people, right? It was done on poor blacks um, in inner cities, potentially. So, um, so there was some interesting correlation. That's what I do remember at the time. I haven't looked at this in a long time. But, you know, they call it idiopathic, which means um, my mom died of a disease called pulmonary fibrosis, which they also call idiopathic. And to me, idiopathic is means that they don't know what's, quote, unquote, causing it. They don't know the causalities of it, so they lump it into the thing, which they call idiopathic. So um, that's what they call SIDS, you know, that it's an idiopathic phenomenon. They don't fully understand it. Um, so, you know, it could lend itself to some other exogenous, right, things that may cause it. Yes, and I believe 1978 was actually the year that Dr. Larry Baroff in um, California published a study on uh SIDS and, and babies as well, and uh, he did find a correlation, a very strong correlation, but um, there wasn't a whole lot of media around it, just as there isn't today. But it, it's incredible that you at that age was were doing this kind of research. That's pretty amazing. And Yeah, I ended up doing it for six years. Um, I did it from 1978 to 1984 when I went to MIT 
We later on published a paper um, that I presented at two biomedical conferences. But, you know, there was a clear correlation that between sleep wave patterns and the onset of apnea. And the sleep is related to your circadian physiology, mm -hmm. which is a whole system, right? Your entire endocrine system um, is involved in this. It's not just any one, it's not just the respiratory system where, you know, or the cardiac system where a baby stops breathing. It's influenced by many, many factors. Yeah. Well, as you're talking about systems, they're complex. We are complex beings. And I want mm -hmm. to talk to you a little more about your study of systems because it's something I've never thought about or even heard about. Um, the interconnectedness of everything is important, but how do you actually study a system in a human body? How do you study what is affecting someone? Yeah, so... Um... You know, the, in 2007, when I finished my PhD at MIT, MIT had created a field called systems biology. Um, so in the East, the system of Siddha, the problem is um, the language is what the issue is. In the world of Siddha, they, my grandmother had a, a whole different lingua franca for describing the body. Because they didn't look at the body as cells and, you know, uh, molecules and genes and DNA and mRNA and metabolites and functional, you know, the things that you get your PhD and everyone uses in that realm of biology or systems biology, right? So when my, the language of Siddha described the body as they said, okay, there was something called non-existence, which they called Purusha, and Purusha gave rise to Prakriti. I'm going to use these terms just to tell you just let people see the, the disturbance of their own systems when I speak these different words, which was the manifestation of everything in the universe. And the universe, is, the universe ma manifested in three types of energy forms, sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic. Those gave then rise to matter, which was space, air, fire, water, and um, earth. Well, those things congealed into, in the Indian system of medicine to three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha. And those control the tissues in your body, blood, you know, all the different tissues in your body, muscle, and then those gave rise to the physical form, which in the Indian systems of medicine, they not only looked at your physical body, but they also looked at the non-physical body, which they call koshas and chakras, which are energy centers. So anyway, the tridoshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, I'm going to use that word, B-A-T-A-P-I-T-T-A, -T -T kapha. So when a Siddha systems physician looks at your body in the traditional systems. When my grandmother would read your face, she was trying to figure out, Meryl, what kind of system you were. Were you a vata? Were you a pitta? Were you a vata pitta? Were you a kapha? Okay? And so they were trying to figure out, were you a Ferrari or were you an SUV, you see? Because the notion was different people had different ways that they, who they were. It was called the constitution. And so you could have two different people in the system who both had diabetes, but they could be very different constitutions. So two different people have very different constitutions who both have an imbalance where they have diabetes. So the way you treat this person over here with diabetes would be very different than the way you treat this person, okay? So the Vata Pitta Kapha system was based on that. So, anyways, so put that over here, 20,000 years of systems been practiced. So fast forward now to 2007, or 2003 actually. In 2003, something profound took place in science. Since the discovery of DNA in 1950s, um, from 1950 all the way to 2003, for those 80 years, 
there was a singular focus when you look at the human cell. Um, the singular focus was on the nucleus and DNA in particular. The goal was um, if if you have this gene, you must have this disease. So in 1990, we knew a worm, a small little worm, had about 20,000 genes, right? They'd mapped out the genome of C. elegans, which is a worm, okay? So we knew a worm had 20,000 genes. So now in 1993, people say, okay, we want to start mapping out the human genome. How many genes do we have? So if I were to ask you that in 1993, I said, you know, Merrill, a little worm has 20,000 genes. How many genes do you think a human, ha a human has? What would you say? 150,000. I have no idea. I'm just guessing. Okay. Yeah, so it's pretty close, actually, into what they thought. So in 1993, you know, the NIH, people like Craig Ventner, they said, okay, we're going to map out the human genome. And the estimate they had was about 100,000 genes in 1993. Because they said, we must at least be five times more complex than a worm. And in fact, there were higher estimates. So the Human Genome Project starts, and people start trying to uh, want to map out the genome. And what ends up happening is by late 90s, they're not finding 100,000 genes. They're only finding 80,000 genes. Okay? Then it continues to early um, 2000. They drop the estimates down to 40,000 and then to 30,000. Well, 2003, the number of genes we have is only 20,000 genes. Less than an earthworm. About about the same as an earthworm. Right. Okay. okay. So just consider that now. So why am I sharing this with you is this. The Western biologists have concluded that complexity, a little worm and a human being, more complex system, they had associated complexity with the number of genes. Mm -hmm. You follow what I'm saying? The number of parts. Yeah. So more parts, more complexity. And this is called reductionism. This is the fatal flaw in science. It, um, but science, engineers don't think this way, by the way. Because if I give you 100 parts, one engineer could connect it, connect all 100 parts connected to each other. Another engineer may just connect all the parts in one line, right? You may just get a string of, let's say, 100 marbles. Someone else will maybe, maybe connect every marble to another, you get a complex structure. So engineers know that complexity is a, is a function, not of a number of parts, but the number of interconnections. Very fundamental difference. Scientists don't think like this. Science is about looking at one phenomenon, focus in a reductionist matter, in a siloed manner. You win a Nobel Prize if you find a two-protein stop. You don't win a Nobel Prize for understanding the entire human body, okay? So that's called reductionism. And so what ended up happening was the irony of the Human Genome Project in 2003 was people recognized, wow, this is really screwed up. We only have 20,000 genes. So biology was slapped in the face. And they realized we needed to move to a systems biology. Now, I came to MIT in 1981. I didn't even know about MIT two weeks before I applied because the last three years of the school that I applied to, we were only the I was only the two Indian kids among 4,000 white kids, and no one told me. I was the number, I think, one or two in the entire class. No one even told me about MIT. I was going to go to a local state college. And two weeks before I applied, my mom had helped these two homeless women stay in our home. She was always helping people. And one of them had some wacky boyfriend who was a crazy mathematician who said, Shiva, you should go to MIT, and he showed me the brochure. 
And I said, I'm not going to this place. It looks like a mental institute. <laughs> so I never applied. He wouldn't leave my home. And I think one or two days before the application was due, I filled it out with a pencil. Anyway, I ended up getting into MIT, came to visit Boston. I thought it was a completely crazy place. I was a center halfback, you know, in, in, in football, as you call it there, played baseball. And these people look nuts. It was my physics teacher who said, Shiva, you should go to Massachusetts, forget MIT, you like Boston. So when I came to MIT, I thought I wanted to really do medicine, like my grandmother. And I ended up seeing that even a place like MIT looked at the body as pieces, parts. Um, that was in 81. I ended up doing a degree in engineering, went out, started a company, came back many years later, did another degree in mechanical engineering, my master's, another degree in design. I actually... I have a, you know, I, I, I wanted to be a designer, an artist, actually. I do a lot of art and design. I studied with the great Muriel Cooper and then went out, started another company in email analysis. But in 2003, the reason I'm giving you this date is my advisor at MIT said, Shiva, you should come back to MIT. There is now a field called systems biology. And you may love it because you've always loved medicine. You have uh, an interest in computing. And what we want to do now is we want to, the challenge is, could we use the computer to mathematically model the entire human cell? So think about what the goal was. So people have put so much focus on the nucleus, but now the realization is, wait a minute, genes are not who make us who we are. It is the genes create proteins which interact with other cellular products. It's a complex system. And Forbes, Dewey is my advisor, um, and, and Forbes said, Shiva, it's only people like you who have an engineering mindset, who have an interest in biology who can solve this problem. And the goal is, could you mathematically model, Meryl, every chemical reaction in the human cell on the computer? Because if you could do that, you could eliminate the need for animal testing. You could really understand what's going on at the cellular level um, by integrating the chemical reaction. So that became my project for four years between 2003 to seven. Uh, everyone thought this was impossible. Like when I created the email, people th thought you couldn't do it. But that's what I ended up doing. So by 2007, I created a technology platform that could literally model the human cell on the computer. I did it in a very different way, took an engineering approach. And then after I finished that in 2007, I said, you know what? Now I have the credentials. I got four degrees from MIT. I have a PhD in systems biology. Let me, in honor to my grandmother, I applied for a Fulbright. I think MIT only gave three or six that year. It's a very competitive process. And I was one of the fortunate ones to get that. And, and my project was, and I was surprised that they gave me the opportunity that was, I want to go back to India and I want to understand that entire Indian system of medicine using engineering systems theory, okay? And on the front page of MIT, they had a big picture of me. They said, you know, uh, uh, East meets West, you know, Shivaidri, armed with four degrees, wants to go back to MIT. I think they found it interesting. Why don't I just start my next company? Why do I want to go back to study this ancient system of medicine? So during that period, Merrill, during 1981 to 2003, I taught at MIT. I did many different things, you know, uh, taught, I taught, got many degrees. But my training was in the Western systems way of looking at engineering systems, which began in the 1930s which began with concepts of thermodynamic theory. It came out of an interest in the 30s was, could we build systems like the human, robot, cybernetics? So I had learned Western systems theory, which is control systems theory, which is how you look at 
everything, you know, your windshield wiper, you know, the automatic windshield wiper, that is an automatic system or the thermostat in your home. Your body is a system to the extent that your body can maintain temperature perfectly, right? It has a goal, which is to maintain your temperature. It does all these processes. So anyway, there's a whole body of Western knowledge called control systems theory. And there are nine principles which define an intelligent system. Okay, so keep that over here. So when I went back to India, I was trying to figure out, well, what is this vata, pitta, kapha that my grandmother used to use? And the big aha moment I had was that the entire system of Indian medicine was not a medical system. And in fact, most healers of the users of the Indian medical system don't even know this. The Indian system of medicine is actually a, it too um, is a system of medicine, which is based on control systems theory. So when I came back, I, 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 it's called sort of, I called it the Rosetta Stone of Indian medicine. I had discovered the entire system of Indian medicine was mapped one-to-one with Western systems theory. And I wrote a paper on it in an engineering systems journal. So that was in 2010 um, when I did, did this and I started teaching a course at MIT called Traditional Medicines and Systems Biology. And it was basically a completely fresh new way to explain to people system theory. So in a um, a 10 part lecture series, the head of the department at MIT allowed me to do this. 200 people would show up to MIT on a Thursday night, three hour class. On one side of the room where your MDs, your PhDs, your hardcore engineering people, and it's interesting enough, we also opened it up to the public. That was my agreement with MIT that people in the public could also come. The other side of the room were yoga teachers, naturopaths, chiropractors, you know, Reiki healers. It was quite profound. They would all sit on one side of the class in a big MIT lecture hall, and the other side would be these hardcore, um, you know, uh, MD, PhDs from Harvard Medical School, et cetera. So and you they were would teaching both look at traditional medicine at MIT, a course at on traditional medicine. Traditional medicine systems biology. I okay. called it both. I want to interrupt just for one second because most of the people listening will be in Australia and they may not know anything about MIT. Now, I haven't lived in the United States for 32 years, but when I was there, MIT and Stanford were the two best uh, science universities in the country. And to get into MIT was just about the best that you can possibly do. And a Fulbright scholarship, which you mentioned before, is basically like a Rhodes scholarship, an incredibly competitive uh, scholarship that is only given to a few people each year. So I just want to add that information in for the people who are watching in Australia who may not know anything about those uh, universities or about the, um, the terms that you were using. So, yeah, you were teaching at one of the most prestigious science universities in the country, a course that encompassed at least um, natural therapies or traditional medicine. Um, and I had a question for you before we go any further, too. You said your grandmother practiced uh, something called SIDA. Is that is that what you called it? S-I-D-D-H-A, yeah. SIDA. Is that related to Ayurvedic medicine? Is it a field, a part of Ayurvedic medicine? Or yeah. Is that something? Yeah. So the, so the reality is SIDA was practiced all over India prior for longer than Ayurveda, okay? So Ayurveda became medicine of the north it got a lot more popularity and there's frankly some unfortunate facts that when the you know if you believe in the Aryan invasion theory uh, what ended up happening was a lot of Siddha got pushed to the south and there's always been the south north it's a longer historic discussion but 
CINDA is much more comprehensive. CINDA included five branches, included the martial arts. It included the use of heavy metals in nanoparticle doses. So for example, people would give mercury or people would give arsenic. Arsenic at low doses is actually very effective for heart disease. Was, they understood dosaging. Um, it involved yoga, what you call hatha yoga today. It involved meditation, and it also involved the use of herbs. In fact, one of the great siddhars actually went all the way uh, to China, and the Shaolin, that entire tradition started from there. In fact, unfortunately, when colonialism took place in India, a lot of these traditional systems of medicine in India were choked. Hmm. In some ways, those traditional medicines which were transported to China actually flowered. So, for example, marma therapy was using pressure points that later became acupuncture, okay? Most people who know martial arts will, will tell you that it all originated in South India. So right. the point is that there was a much more comprehensive system. Uh, but yeah, so it is related to Ayurveda, but Ayurveda is in some ways a subset of Siddha. Thank you for so, that. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so here, the, the reason I'm giving this background is so what ended up, what I uncovered was that the language which was used in, in the Indian system of medicine was a language which directly related one-to-one -one with Western control systems theory. So my conclusion was that these ancients did not view, you know, they didn't understand the body in terms of reductionist ways, like a, a gene or a cell. They realized that the body is an interconnected system. So they developed the language for that marrow. And that language was what I shared with you. So, but I was able to find the Rosetta Stone linking it. So this class I would teach is, and people say, wow. So these medical doctors would in some ways have this profound aha, that they way, the way that they were studying medicine was off. And these new age people, these so-called yoga people, also had a profound aha that they were speaking terms that, in fact, they didn't even know what the hell they were saying. This has been the problem. So, for example, people would use the word karma, right? Well, karma has nothing to do with anything spiritual. Karma actually means right action. The control system theory of input, output, and three forces that dominate the, the universe, three forces, the movement of information, matter, and energy known as transport the conversion of information, matter, and energy. Like digestion is a conversion process. You eat an apple, you, your body breaks it up, right? Yep. And then the, the, um, and then the aspect of your body that sustains things, that holds things together, the storage or the structure concept, your bones, for example, your skin. Transport, conversion, storage. Well, what I discovered was those things directly are vata, pitta, and kapha. Because in the Indian system, the vata herbs were the things that supported motion, movement. The pitta herbs are the things that supported conversion, digestion. And the kapha herbs are the ones that supported the building of muscle and bone. Anyway, I had made this big interconnection between East and West, was able to now bring these worlds together. And I created that into a program called Systems Health. And uh, even the Ayurvedic people like the Maharishis, and the, you know, um, there's a guy called Deepak Chopra in the US. You know, Deepak tried to explain Ayurveda and it was a miserable failure, so he ended up trying to become a guru. Well, so I started doing lectures at the Chopra Center um, where people would pay us immense amounts of money. They said, wow, I've been studying all this stuff on Ayurveda, but I never knew what the hell it was. No, Ayurveda is not a medical system. It's an engineering control system. So over the years, I started educating people that you can understand everything as a system. Um, and by the time I, I decided to run for, uh, for politics, I had come to the conclusion that, okay, if these systems are invariant, you could also apply to politics, meaning that you should be able to look at political systems. They should have the same concepts. 
So when we came up with the slogan, truth, freedom, and health, truth, freedom, and health is directly related to transport conversion storage, directly related to Vata Pitta Kapha. Let me explain. Freedom, it's the movement aspect of nature. Moving information, moving ideas, um, moving yourself. So if you have, you know, vaccine passports, you can't move, you're violating freedom. If you have only three companies in the world, which are suppressing information distribution, you're suppressing movement of in, uh, uh, information, right? Movement of matter, movement of information, et cetera. Freedom is directly the transport principle, the Vata principle. So without freedom, we cannot discourse, we can't have debate. And without discourse or debate, <coughs> you cannot do science. And what is science? Science is the ability to take an idea, use a scientific method, and find out is that idea that you have truth or is it garbage, right? It is a open methodology. That's the conversion principle, truth. Now, once you have freedom and truth, you can discover the real problems in any situation and the real solution. That leads you to real health, the health of your physical body, which is the infrastructure, the structural aspect. And without health, you can't fight for freedom, you can't fight for truth, right? Think about how if you ever get sick, you can't really do anything. So truth, freedom, and health is not a slogan. It is something connected to universal laws. It exists independent of, of us. That's why the great philosophers always talked about the importance of freedom. The American most constitutions try to bring in the freedom of speech because it was fundamental to human existence. And, you and without the virus... You wrote an article that I read, which is excellent, about how innovation is stifled when there isn't that scientific freedom and the ability to communicate about uh, these issues. I, I forget the name of it. I had written, Innovation Demands Freedom. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, that was when I was, I'm sorry. No, no, you go That ahead. was when I was, yeah, so I was, when I, remember I said I took a hiatus to India when I was leaving India after finishing my Fulbright. I was asked by the Prime Minister of India and was appointed to run one of the largest science institutions. They said, you know, you've been in America for many years. Why don't you help your motherland? And so I decided to help build the Innovation Center under, for the government of India. And in the middle of that, I found so much corruption that I couldn't, you know, I, I was given a beautiful home, you know, treated like royalty in India, but I couldn't stay with, stand within that corruption. I exposed the fact that most of the science in India is so stifled that it's still in the British, you know, sort of feudal system. And um, I wrote a, a report on this. I was fired. I was um, evicted from my home under death threats. I had to come back to the United States. But that's when I wrote that, Innovation Demands Freedom. Look, and what you find is when, even in the United States, and right after I finished that is when I got back to India and the email, quote, unquote, controversy took place. And I had found out that the America had also become a caste system. Because the fact is what bothered them most about the invention of the email, Merrill, was not the fact that I invented email. The facts are obvious. The issue was they needed to create a controversy because the email was not created at MIT. It wasn't created by Harvard dropouts, right? It was created by a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, and goes at the heart of this fundamental issue that innovation is in everyone's DNA. Innovation can occur anytime, anyplace, by anybody. A 14-year-old boy, by the way, invented TV. So the invention of email and TV took place outside of the bastions of the military-industrial academic complex. That's what bothers people. So since 1970, starting started in 1940, but up until 1970 when it was all centralized, uh, two organizations in the United States called the National Institute of Health 
and the National Science Foundation consolidated all the power and money of science and technology. So if you wanted to be a scientist at any one of the major institutions, you had to write grants and you had to follow the party line. So science became highly centralized. Innovation became highly centralized. Um, so when I invented email, it wasn't done in the bastions of innovation, the five major technology centers like MIT was done before that. And this bothers the elites because the truth is science should be an open science model. Innovation should be an open innovation model. But what do all the governments do? They create centers of innovation. Let's create a hub for innovation, right? It's a very screwed up model. Mm. It's like trying to do genetically engineered seeds. Innovation is actually a weed. It can happen in Newark. It can happen at MIT, okay? It can happen anywhere. And in fact, most problems are done by everyday human beings solving a civilian problem, not solving stuff for the military. But the so issue when is you, they can't control it then. They can't control right. the innovation. They can't control the innovation, nor can they control the narrative of it. So what's mm -hmm. happened is in the U.S. with the passage of the Mansfield Amendment in the 1970s, science became politicized. And um, so if you look at 1962, since you want to talk about, you know, a lot of people don't, don't know, in 1962, the Kennedy Vaccination Act was passed. John Kennedy is the one who created the 1962 Vaccination Act. Okay. What and that, that created, act? it was called the Vac National Vaccination Act, which created all the infrastructure for national vaccine programs and the entire framework. Now, the science that they had in 1962 was based on an understanding of the immune system that went back to 1915. And by just, just, just for your audience to let people know, my PhD at MIT, by the way, just, you know, 50, to, first of all, to get into MIT is a pretty big thing. To get into the PhD program, 50% of the people get into the PhD program flunk out, okay, because they make the exam so difficult. So my PhD was in the field of the immune system and computational systems biology of it. So in fact, in 2019, I was invited before all this stuff happened with the whatever quote unquote pandemic to give the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation on the modern theory of the immune system. This was in 2019. So the reason I'm bringing that up is in 1962, the idea of the immune system was based on a very simple model of the immune system, that there are two boxes. And the whole goal of it was to upregulate antibodies, right? If you have white blood cell count or this much antibodies, you have a great immune system. Everyone should understand that that scientific understanding of the immune system when the National Vaccination Act was created in the United States was based on that 1915 understanding. And still to this day, most people just have a two-box understanding of the immune system. The innate immune system, which is that part of your body, which is in your eyes, your nose, your throat, your mucous membranes, which when it sees a pathogen come, it's the first attack vehicle. It includes macrophages, killer cells, which are like the Marines, which try to eat up the virus, okay? And then after that, the second box is called the adaptive immune system, which takes the dismembered pieces of that virus or that pathogen and those are used to create something called an antibody. But that comes much later. And the notion of the 1915 model, the two-box model of the immune system is, if you have X number of antibodies, your immune system's great, all right? So the 1962 Kennedy Vaccination Act was based on that, when Kennedy signed that act. Now go to 1986 in the United States. Um, people are starting to get reporting injuries, people are filing lawsuits, et cetera. Well, the politicians, including 
John Kennedy's brother, Ted Kennedy, he sponsored a bill not to get rid of this act, but to preserve in some way his brother's legacy. And they created the National Vaccine Injury Program. And what did that do? It put a big, it, what should have happened in 1986 was, by 1986, we have new science. Well, they didn't get rid of that act. You know, the Kennedys always want to preserve their legacy, or they're, they're the only ones who can save the world, for, you know, for all of us. So, so Ted Kennedy creates the National Vaccine Injury Program. And what was that? That was a, he was a sponsor of that bill. And that essentially gave a free passport to the vaccine manufacturers, which basically said you're indemnified from being sued. In fact, they created a vaccine court under Health and Human Services. That was in 1986. So the science should have prevailed then. They should have just gotten rid of it. Instead, they, they you know, beefed up fake science, bad science. So basically, so now in 1986, you had a free get out of jail free pass to the vaccine manufacturers. You uh, essentially forgot about the real science. And then we had all of us begging for, oh, please, so, right, please give me medical. So they created medical exemptions and religious exemptions. They gave the masses some crumbs. Since 1986 to today, we've been fighting for crumbs. That's what's been going on, led again by Robert Kennedy Jr., okay? And look, I've done a movie with Robert Kennedy. I know him, you know, I used to be out in Hollywood, all right? But let me tell you this, I'm like the untouchable, right? No one is supposed to touch the Kennedys. When I got involved in the medical freedom movement, I started seeing wherever this Kennedy goes, he loses. He goes to California, he loses. He goes to Albany, he loses. And I was brought up to fight, Merrill, maybe because I was an untouchable, you know, I grew up in working class neighborhoods. I didn't grow up as, you know, silver, silver spoons in my mouth. I had to fight for everything and working people have to fight for everything. When I was at MIT at, at, at 17, I not only studied science and engineering, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. I led a massive protest. I organized food service workers at MIT because I never forgot where I came from, Merrill. It's not a theory thing for me to build my brand to fight. That's what it is for others. And, and I have so, to say, I, I, I have to stop you just for one second, because I also come from a working class background, and um, I have to say that I don't know Robert Kennedy personally, uh, but I have seen that he has sacrificed an awful lot in order to, he's opposed his whole family, and I think that for the Kennedy's family is extremely important, just like it is for many other, you know, well, societies. Well, let's, I have to that. Well, I have to beg to differ. So this is what this is what this is why we need to take a systems approach. You know, every night we teach a course. Uh, you know, there's what people say and the theatrics and what they do. You have to understand something, Meryl. Those in power are extremely clever. So let me let me educate a little bit here, okay? Okay. When you start studying politics, you will understand that there is a goal when you apply systems thinking. There's a goal, and there are disturbances that come to your goal. Okay. And everyone, I encourage everyone to go to vashiva.com slash join. And every, uh, we have a lot of people from Australia who come in. And I'll play I'll a little video that. for you. I'll link that. Yep. Yeah. Um, but let me tell you, the world is in this situation today. And it's going to be hard for people to hear this. But it is the truth. The reason that we are on the verge of, we are in fascism right now. Hmm is not because of the obvious establishment. It is because of the not so obvious establishment. You see, if you look at the bird of the American Eagle, the head is the establishment. 
The shoulders are the obvious establishment. The left has their shoulder in the United States is people like Joe Biden and the Clintons and the Obamas. Okay, the obvious left establishment. Yeah. The right has the obvious establishment. People like McConnell and the Romneys and McCain's, okay? But the eagle cannot fly without the wings. The wings on the left flap, they have people like Bernie Sanders, AOC, okay? People who talk a good game. The Kennedys, people like Robert Kennedy, who flaps a good game. But at the end of the day, in Massachusetts, he came and endorsed his own nephew, who's for vaccine mandates. He endorsed Hillary Clinton three times. And I was the first one to bring this out, because a lot of rich white mothers keep giving him money. And when I brought this, oh, how, why are you attacking Bobby? Bobby's done so much. Stop. Stop. Time out. Time out. Let's look at the actual results. Don't get caught with the Kennedy brand, because it can be theater. The, the establishment, you know, look, a lot of, when I used to live out in Hollywood, okay? A lot of people, Meryl, do stuff because it's their shtick. Oh, yeah, I come from this family. I do this. But I run a cancer foundation. I do this. It's their do-good stuff, okay? And this is hard for people to appreciate. So when Robert Kennedy talks about he endorsed Hillary Clinton three times, and I'm not saying voted for her, endorsed her, went publicly, said how much she's fighting Big Pharma when she got all uh, most of her money from Big Pharma. And when I expose this, Robert Kennedy said that I'm a vaccine manufacturer. He said that I work with Bill Gates. Absolute lies. I sued him in federal court. So people I, need to understand there are, I, I want, let me, I, I have to explain this. I do. I understand. There are real leaders. The reason we're here is Kennedy is not delivered. Yeah. He, he watches where the big protests are and he sweeps in. He wanted to come here to speak. He wanted his first class ticket paid. He wanted his hotel room covered. I'm sorry, the Kennedys don't need more money. When we went down in New Jersey, we, where we won, because I said, we need to build a militant bottoms up movement. And him and Dell bugged Big Tree, said, oh, Shiva's gonna hurt our uh, negotiations with the Democrats. No, that's why we won there, because a street kid came there and taught him how to fight. And we're not gonna win stuff by, until people recognize that we have the obvious establishment and we have these people flapping. And the reason we're in this condition is because we outsource our futures to heroes, the Kennedys. Robert Kennedy endorsed his nephew here. I ran for office here. And I, I didn't need his endorsement. His Kennedy supports vaccine mandates. Now you tell this to people, it's like a hard thing. Maybe people don't get it. Well, he says this, he says that. Well, forget what he says. What can did I, he actually do? Can I share something with you? Because I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And... And I've been I, I understand. For 50 years, I, Meryl. Sorry. Yeah. I understand I've been fighting exactly for what you're for 50, saying. 50 years. And I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. But what I what I feel really strongly, and I have to share this with you, is that um, we are we are very much in a society where we need to wake people up, and where we have such polarization between both sides where we have people fighting us every day we're disease mongering we are we are spreading germs and and viruses and bacteria that's making the entire world sick and we have to realize that though there may be many things that separate us and believe me there are plenty of people in my community in australia who i feel are very wrong on so many things we are united we have to be united 
because we have so much to give. You have so much to give. I have loved watching all of your videos, reading your articles, and I want to read more and more and more. And I really feel that we cannot be divided on this issue. We have to find our common ground. And though Bobby Kennedy may have endorsed that mass demon uh, Clinton, you know, Hillary Clinton, I don't think he would do the same today. Three times. Yeah, I understand. Well, no, she's not she running now. She's well, not well, running well, now. Okay. okay, so let's <laughs> so. talk about the word. So, so this is a systems question. Mm. This word unity is a very specific term. We have to apply scientific principles. Just as you're going to build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. Agree? Yes, absolutely. You can get lucky. If you want to build a plane, we didn't build airplanes until we understood Bernoulli's principles. Okay? It wasn't lawyers who built the plane. If they did, they would all crash. Okay. All right. So follow my, so, so be objective here. I will try. It wasn't, yes, it wasn't lawyers who built transformers. It wasn't Kennedy's who built transformers. It was people like Michael Faraday who understood and, and they built Maxwell's equations. Now, talk about building movements. Apply the same. There are scientific principles. There are engineering principles. And you know what? A dark-skinned Indian kid who came from nothing has figured out those principles. And I'm here to educate people. And if people want to learn them, they can. The word unity is sometimes a cover-up for avoiding scientific understanding. And it's a way to shove very, very important principles under the rug. Bobby Kennedy needs to take my course. But you know what? Bobby Kennedy knows because he comes from a lineage of what's called the not-so-obvious establishment. The Kennedys want to be popular. His father, Bobby Kennedy, was spying on the civil rights movement. And there was a bottoms-up movement that took place, which was people like Malcolm X. People should read his book. Hmm. And that was going to be a bottoms-up movement of poor blacks and whites wanting infrastructure in the inner cities. All right? Bobby Kennedy watched this movement, and they went and plucked Martin Luther King. And they pushed that aspect of the movement. They watched movements, Merrill. They watched which way the wind's blowing, and they selected Martin Luther King. The entire March on Washington was orchestrated by the Southern National Christian Conference and the Kennedys. They did not want the real movement. They heisted it. It was organized. It was deliberate. And what did we end up after civil rights? Don't use the N-word, which is the bad word, right? They created affirmative action. You know, this is all liberal things, as though they're helping the poor black man, okay? And what we did was we pitted blacks against whites. And... I can get into this, but people need to wake the hell up. And maybe they need to, maybe it's hard to accept it from a dark-skinned Indian guy. I don't attacking think a skin color has no, no, anything no, to do with it. No, no, it is, because it's, when I started talking about this, I said, wait a minute, this guy just endorsed Hillary Clinton. Oh, oh, people make apologies. It is not about unity. It is, if you go play baseball, or if you go play sports, if you do engineering, if you're one degree off, you're not going to hit the moon. Okay, it's not about unity. Science is not about unity. Science is about getting things right. So we have to stop using the word unity as a way of saying, oh, let's all be one kumbaya. No, we have to do the right thing at the right time with the right people. You know, the guy who called out the space shuttle, McDonald, Alan McDonald, who just died about three weeks ago, you know, he was the one who knew that the space shuttle was going to blow up. The O-rings had never been tested. Right. Okay. And they wanted to push him. And he said, I'm not going to sign off on this. They 
you know, everyone attacked him, vitiated him. I mean, you know, a lot of attacks on him. You know, when he died, he said, you know, I looked back and he said, I did the right thing at the right time with the right people. You have to do the right thing and call out. You can't be part of the mob, okay? It's not about unity. And if people want to win this, they should start following the scientific principles here. The bottom line is you cannot play with the devil. You cannot say that you're going to ameliorate things. Well, he's a Democrat. He had to do that. Uh-uh. That's not unity. You're following a wrong set of principles. We cannot build stuff. You cannot unify on wrong principles. The principle here is this that the bottom line is this, that there is nothing called safe vaccine, okay? Yeah, I agree. Because the issue, the issue is the building, it, it's not pro or anti-vax even. When I got into this, I looked at this and I said, they're creating the same theater, pro-vax, anti-vax, pro-vax, anti-vax. The real issue here, when you apply a system's approach is to boost the immune system. It's about, let's have a dialogue about boosting the immune system. That's what we should focus on. But instead, you have one group here making money, the little nonprofits talking about anti-vax all day. Okay, and over here, the pro-vax guys. But they don't want to take a systems approach. A systems approach reveals, let's talk about boosting the immune system. And that's the approach I came from. When I started talking about that, you know, people said, wow, this is great. All the groups invited me here, all the yoga teachers, all the people who've been giving... Kennedy money. But the day I said, wait a minute, let me also expose from a system standpoint, we're not going to win doing their approach, you know, negotiating with the Democrats, negotiating with politicians. That way is never going to win. I'm not going to unify around that. We're not going to win. The way we unify is actually getting your hands dirty, not just saying boots on the ground, actually doing that. And that takes you getting your hands dirty. You can't do it from Malibu. Okay, you can't watch movements and sweep in and then ask people to fund you. This is wrong. And so I'm telling you as a son of people like you came from nothing, this movement, any movement against the establishment has to start with principles first. Then you unify around those principles, not try to shove stuff under the rug. There are fundamental differences here and movements need to have this. When I expose Kennedy, he said, I'm a vaccine manufacturer. Disgusting. Okay? That's never good. Yeah. I, I want to... the movement, but I'm telling you, this is the most important part of our discourse right here. The way that we build a movement to win. If people want to win or people want to make do Dale Carnegie to people, please. We're not going to win that way. We're going to win. We won in New Jersey because we were out there all these movements, the, the anti-vax movement was telling mothers, carry this sign, don't do this, don't do this. We don't want to piss off legislators. As though they don't trust people. Yeah. Bobby is going to talk to them. Bobby is going to sue them. It has, you know, it's, it's bullshit. The way we win is a bottoms-up movement. You know, I have two lawsuits in federal court. I ran for federal office here against Kennedy's nephew, who he endorsed, who wants vaccine mandates. And that was just in 2020, Meryl, okay? It's not 2016, not yeah. 2010. Yeah. So I want people to wake up. Give, stop following billionaires. Stop following celebrities. Stop following Kennedys. We need to build this movement bottoms up because of all the people who are pro-vax and anti-vax, it's a small group. 30% are never going to agree with you on any topic. 20% will be the echo chamber. The 50% who are out there are who we need to educate. Yeah. And that's a different educational process. 
that goes down to educating people on science. That doesn't just mean talking about being anti-vax. It doesn't work. It's like the pro and anti-GMO movement, the Republicans and the Democrats, and absolving one side because you want to build unity. Uh -uh. We're not gonna, it's not unity. It's not about unity, it's about principles. If you're founding stuff on wrong principles and airplanes never gonna fly, bridges fall off, transformers don't work. We don't need lawyers, we need people who actually do bottoms up. So that's a different thing I bring. Now people, if that bothers people, well, that's great. I'm not gonna unify along fake principles because you're gonna head for disaster. And that's why we're here. After 20 years of supposedly making awareness about vaccines, what we've created is we've created this rifted world. We never talked about boosting the immune system. We never talked about building a bottoms up movement. We never talked about educating people. Yep. So that's why we're in this condition. We're in fascism, not because of the fascists, but because of the not so obvious establishment on the left and right, including Trump. Trump, right? Let's talk about Trump. We talked about the left. Trump talked all this stuff, lock her up. You know, he was gonna help the American working class. He did nothing to Hillary Clinton. Disappointing. He exercised Operation Warp Speed, hmm. okay? And what I discovered in our elections in Massachusetts, you know, guys like me are not supposed to run. It's only preserved for the Kennedys, right? Or certain strata of people to run. Do you believe so when I ran, the election through voter fraud? We are the only ones who have two, and two lawsuits in federal court, which are still alive, which I've, which I've gotten five victories, and I'm representing myself. No lawyers. Hmm. No lawyers, okay? Two lawsuits. The first lawsuit, we showed that my votes were multiplied by two-thirds. The other guys was multiplied by 1.2. The opposition tried to get it dismissed. Both of their motions for dismissal were thrown out of court, so we're alive. All of Trump's lawsuits were thrown out because they weren't in, into really fighting it. Fake election fraud. In the second lawsuit, we exposed the fact that in the United States, the Australian audience listening, there's two ways you can vote. One is you vote with a paper ballot, hand counted by a human being. Hmm. The second is the ballot goes through a machine, an image is created, and the image is calculated based on AI. So in Massachusetts, we had 3,000 volunteers, you know, 20,000 know, 20, bumper stickers, 10,000 lawn signs, bottoms up movement. We were everywhere. The Republican GOP found a fool to run a lawyer who was nowhere to be found. On September election day, we win in the predominantly hand counted county by 10 points. Every other county, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40, 60-40. I said, there's no way this guy won. And that started my journey. I never believed election fraud took place in the United States. What we discovered was that the voting machines have the ability to multiply your votes by a factor. And I'm sure this happens in Australia too. We use the hand voting. counting. We use hand counting. No That's machine good. voting here. Were they Dominion voting machines in Massachusetts? Well, it's not only Dominion. You see, I'm not going to, it's not Dominion. It's not the voting software. Mike Lindell and those guys, Sidney Powell, have it wrong. They don't want to go after the real enemy because they'll point back to their own parties. The Republicans and Democrats have both been certifying voting machines across all software vendors which have a feature called the weighted race feature. It's in all of the machines where you can multiply by your votes by a factor. So what I figured out, I have to use all my own technical skills. I have to go read all the manuals, get other people to help me. What we figured out was the voting machines are certified by Republicans and Democrats, going back at least to 2002, have a feature where you can multiply a vote by a factor, okay? So it's not one person, one vote. 
It's not mail-in ballots, which Trump was barking about and raising money on. It's not voter suppression with the Democrats do, which pits blacks against whites, by the way. It's a fundamental issue. Republicans and Democrats, black and white, have been endorsing and certifying voting machines at the state election level, which have this feature. So when I brought this out on September 25th, I had a discourse with the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, and I said, where are the ballot images? I want to see the ballot images. They said, we don't save them, we delete them. I said, you violated federal law. When I shared those email interactions on Twitter, I've never been thrown off suspended for Twitter. I was suspended for three weeks in the middle of my federal campaign. We found out, I filed a lawsuit, no lawyer wanted to take it on. I filed it myself. I went up against three lawyers and we won in federal court. The judge reprimanded the other side. We showed in testimony in four hours of cross-examination that the government had contacted big tech. Let me repeat this. Twitter didn't take me down on their own. It was the government of Massachusetts contacted big tech because they were going to be thrown in jail because they violated federal law. Such corruption. All right? Right. It's not big tech. It's not big pharma. It is government colluding with big pharma. Hillary Clinton colludes with big pharma. Robert Kennedy endorsed Hillary Clinton, who colludes with big pharma. There can be no compromise. Donald Trump, you know, accelerated Operation Warp Speed. And why is this important? It's beyond even vaccine. It's about the money. So Pfizer, I, I had a big demonstration. I asked people in the audience, 1,000 people, I said, how many people think Pfizer's making money? Everyone raises their hand. Not true. Since 2012, Pfizer has been losing money. They made $65 billion in 2012. In 2020, you know how much money they made, Merrill? How much? $40 billion. They lost $25 billion. And as someone who's been studying this for 20, 30 years, big pharma has been tanking. Their trillion dollar industry has been going downward. You know why? Because it takes 13 years to create a drug. $5 billion. And they keep spending 30% every year on R&D. Their entire drug development process is in the medieval world. So they can't make money off. In fact, the FDA is approving less and less and less of pharmaceutical drugs. Vaccines are growing at 17% per year. Okay? They need, it's, it's, it's pure money. Yeah. They need to grow that model. But that's not what's talked about in the anti-vax movement. That's the real issue. What we do is we defocus it into other nonsense. The real issue is follow the money. And both Republicans and Democrats have been supporting big pharma. And Kennedy and people like ICANN push safe vaccines. Why are they pushing that? Because whenever the liberals talk about something safe, it helps the right wing create monopolies. This is what people need to understand. It's a horse trading game. Safety means we're going to impose regulations, which will then result in only a very small set of people being able to be affording those regulations. Happen in the medical field. My sister went to medical school, Harvard Medical School. It's very difficult for her to practice medicine because of all these regulations. She can't even look at the patient anymore. She left medicine. In the banking industry, it wiped out small banks. So the liberal elites talk about safety, which is a buzzword to create regulations, which create monopolies. So this dynamics is what comes out of system thinking. You understand the interconnection, and it makes people wake up. So if we want to build a movement, nature, systems theory, shows you that nature is decentralized. Nature is not you know, owned by a few set of people, not by celebrities, 
not by few people that we have to, oh, they're helping us. Nah, -uh. that's a neo-missionary model. N nature is decentralized. We need to educate people broadly. And what we've done in the infrastructure, you know, we moved our election to creating a platform. So when people go to vashiva.com, using all the stuff that I did for the last 20 years, I, I built data centers. So in our data center, we're educating people on systems thinking. We're educating people on the fundamental science. In three hours, I can teach that to people. Second, we build community. We have our own equivalent of Facebook. I'm not here to sell it and make, you know, like Twitter. We're doing it for the underground. People come in, they can discourse, they can talk, they can communicate. And third, we teach people on election integrity. We have these little flashcards, three, three, three and a half by two. People can go educate their neighbors. Don't wait for someone else to come. There is no Messiah. Go talk to your neighbors. We give people. Be it on vaccines, be it on the mask, be it on issues. We integrate science, legal, et cetera. You know what? We don't beg for money. We give people stuff. You give us money, we give you education. I don't ask for, please give me a $16,000 flight ticket. Fly me here, fly me there. When we went to New Jersey, Merrill, it was my SUV with our sound system. When we got there, the Kennedys and those people had no sound system. They came in their four black SUVs. Okay? Why? Are you better than me? I don't so know. This is a not, well, the movement is not going to be built, so I'm here to wake people up. Okay? You said in one of your talks that you are here to build, to make leaders. You don't want to make followers. And I think catalyzing people. You're right. We need to catalyze important. people. We need to catalyze people to go local. And what I'm doing is being a catalyst. I'm taking all that knowledge I got that I was very fortunate to get, all that building stuff I did, and we are educating people. People say, shoot, I want to give you money. I, want, I say, look, if you give me money, my, my grandmother, very amazing woman, when my uncle became a doctor, he came back to the village and he asked my grandmother for her blessings. And she said, I will only give you blessings under one, one promise you must make to me. If someone comes to you, and they have no money, and they ask you to do a surgery, and they ask you to help them, will you do it? And, he, and my um, uncle said yes, and then she blessed him, okay? My grandmother never charged a penny. So it's my great-grandfather, who was a shaman, who would go into trend. I mean, he was an amazing guy. 90, he died at 100 and something. I used to see him work out in the fields until 93, pounding grain, bleeding. That's how hard he worked. You know, he would cough up blood. But my grandfather was very frugal, but if any child in the village needed a book, he would give it. So that's the principle. We have to educate people. Hmm. And that education, I'm, I'm teaching people the fundamental education of everything. It's the science of everything. It is how systems work. It is how your body works as a system. And we have a software we've created. You can use it to understand your body. It is how the universe works as a system. It is how politics works. And we're not going to change the world if we don't understand systems theory teaches you there's something called a disturbance. You want to fly from Boston to LA, there's going to be disturbances, wind, shear, turbulence. The disturbance in, is, in our movement is the not so obvious establishment. And it doesn't matter how nice they are, Merrill. It doesn't matter how what they say. At the end of the day, we have to look at their results. Okay? And you have to look at it with criticism. It's not about unity. Unity is the buzzword for saying, let's not critique, let's not build a laser. We need to build a movement of Jedi Knights who get it if we're going to win. The establishment since 1970 has been using system science. 
There are 5,000 people in the world who know system science. There are places called McKinsey, who's the one who advises the Gates Foundation, okay? There are people at Bain, the Romney Organization. These people, I went to school with these guys. These people are very smart people. They have mapped this out. You know, a Robert Kennedy talking about, uh, it's not gonna solve it, okay? Flying in, flying to, watching which way the marches. I mean, you're, it's insanity, it's naivete. I, I agree that not one person. Well, bottom no, up is what we need. And that's what I want to ask right. you, because my biggest frustration in doing what I do is that there are, I see two groups of people in our community. One group who are really very much on side. They believe that freedom is essential. They believe that health does not come from a needle or a pill, but they also believe that they don't have to do anything because someone else is going to do it for them. Yeah. And that is a huge frustration. There is another group of people who are, they used to be fence-sitters, but now with COVID, they're no longer fence-sitters. They are terrified of this new shot. I won't call it a vaccine because it's not. But they believe that um, if they speak up, they're going to lose their job. They're going to lose their house. They're going to lose their car. They might lose their marriage. The kids can't go to school. So they're keeping their mouths shut. Do you have a solution for a bottoms yeah. up? Yeah. Tell me, please. I'd love yeah. to hear so that. That's what I created. Right. So I invented email. I invented Citus. I've invented many things. But my greatest invention will be the Truth, Freedom, and Health platform. And that platform is a three-part platform. And I'll, I'll play a video and I'll show it to you because because I want to leave okay. with solutions. Okay? No worries. Um, yeah. We have to critique. We have to critique like you do in science. And by the way, you know, when I do this criticism, some people don't like it and they should put a mirror up to their face because if you don't like their criticism, you want to censor me, then you're, this is, you, you know, you get what you deserve because people are going to censor you. People need to wake up and recognize that there is a real problem and there is a real solution. So we have to look at it. What's been working hasn't worked, Marilyn. Look at where we are. Trump didn't work. The Kennedys haven't worked. Well, maybe a low caste Indian untouchable grew up as a working class kid who actually got all these degrees and figured out maybe there are solutions that will come from there that are so different that can actually be the innovation from the outskirts. And that innovation is number one, we've created a platform. The platform lets you every Monday night, it's a lot of work, okay? I spend live. People come in and we have created what's called the Truth, Freedom and Health Warrior Training Program. We want people to get educated. We want you to actually go back to school. Like how did movements build in the world? When did movements fail? When did movements succeed? And actually do an analysis on them, not like unity. No, how did movements actually work? Well, we teach people that. We teach people systems theory. I teach people a three-year course at MIT in control systems in one hour. I've been able to distill it. So people get an MIT education on, wow, systems thinking. So now they're learning systems thinking. They're learning real history. And they're learning all the people who screwed up movements from Gandhi in India, from Martin Luther King, from the Kennedys, et cetera. It's like sacrilegious stuff, but they learn that we're not going to win following the not so obvious establishment. And then we, so they learn this core education. Second, now your consciousness gets elevated. You're going to need community. So on this platform, we've created an environment where people can communicate. We've created the version of Facebook, but better. We've created a forum where people can put up whatever questions they want. It's in my data center. It's in, in an environment that I pushed to this movement, donated. I spent millions of dollars building my data center. I used to host 
American Express, Citigroup, the biggest companies in the world. All right? Kennedy's could be doing that. They got a billion dollar trust fund. This is why I'm so harsh on them. Okay? Asking others for money? Come on. You have enough money. You make money every time scotch is sold. So we've created that, an environment where people can discourse. Third, we want people to activate on the local areas, independent of politicians, independent of you know, elections. So we've created in different areas, flashcards, things that they can go talk to the 50% that they can convince. So educate, communicate, activate. That's what this is about. And it's all in a platform that's independent of big tech, no one's going to get thrown off. We have principles, but this is an educational environment to create powerful leaders, warriors. And by the way, the term warrior, some people are saying, oh, that sounds aggressive. When you, you know what? Some of the new age people say this. <laughs> what people don't understand is in the original term in Siddha, Vaidir, meant there was no distinction in ancient archetypes of the warrior and the healer. They were one. The warrior and the healer, the warrior who fought for, against evil was the same as a healer who fought death. They were the same people. And in fact, in the archetypes of the, even in the Christian tradition, if you look at Archangel Michael, who's the person who you pray to for healing, but he was also the one who chased out, you know, Lucifer out of heaven. In the Indian tradition, you have another deity called Murugan, who's the son of Shiva, who's the one who brought medicine to the earth. But he's also the one who chased out, the, you know, the devil. So the concept of medicine the healer and the warriors one for some reason when western people learn yoga they try to make it all narcissistic it's about doing this posture and it's about peaceful and kind don't use those words don't get angry don't get aggressive well wait the hell up that's why we want in new jersey working people actually do get angry okay they use four letter words it's not like they're into diplomacy no. that's not how the world changes and in the 1900s all over the world, May Day was yesterday. Do you know where what May Day was for? What what it commemorates? Errol, do you know Not what it commemorates? Really. No, I well I remember that learning in school about girls going around a maypole on May Day, but that's all I remember. May, yeah, so this is the Americans suffer worse propaganda than any group of people in the world now. May Day was created. May Day was created after four American workers were hanged, hanged in the United States in 1886, in 1886 on, uh, on May 3rd, after they had protested and led a huge march for the eight-hour workday. After they were hanged, which is one of the biggest travesties of justice, workers all over the world commemorated that day as International Workers' Day. Reagan changed it to, uh, Eisenhower changed it to Loyalty Day, and Reagan changed it to Law Day. Wow. And so what happened in the United States was uh, it was the working class movements led by women in the 1800s, powerful bottoms up movements. No re Republicans, no Democrats in the 1930s. All of that has been wiped out of American history. There's pictures of blacks and whites and yellows and red people in, in Times Square, millions of people. There was going to be a revolution in the United States and a gun was put to the head of the Democrats and Republicans. And that's why they gave the eight-hour workday. That's when we eliminated child labor. That's when we got nutrition. That's when we got sanitation. That's when we got hygiene. That's when we built highways and roads. It was because of this movement. And everyone makes Franklin Delano Roosevelt as though he was some saint. He was a racist elitist. The, the New Deal was garbage. It was the American working class movement between 1945 to 1975. 
the American pie grew for everyone. But between 1900 to 1948, during that movement is when we had massive decline in measles and infectious disease. If the plumber and the sanitation worker did more than the pharmacist or the medical doctor 15 years later, right, when the vaccine came. But this has all been forgotten. But the Democrats and Republicans colluded starting in the 1950s. Anytime you talk about building up a bottoms-up militant working class movement, the Republicans called it communist, right? When you said working people unite, that was called Marxist, socialist, communist. And the left wing took over that and they created top-down union. Why so do you call it a working have, class movement? Why exclude people who are not working class? Well, let's talk about that. It's a good question, okay? What do we mean by working class? Okay, let's define that. Um, working people are those people who produce something. Lawyers are not of the working class. I'm sorry, bankers are not. They move capital around. There's some, there's some areas, gray areas there, but fundamentally we're talking, look, when I talk to working class people, an electrician and a plumber about climate change, okay, they get it. I mean, CO2, I mean, you have the same people who are supposedly in the quote unquote anti-vax movement also go support the climate change nonsense because it's part of the wing of the Democratic Party. When you look at it objectively, reducing everything to CO2 makes no sense. If you talk to a plumber, an electrician, everyday people, they get it. Engineers get this. You talk to neurosurgeons who work with their hands, they get it. You know the people don't get it? The people who study humanities, unfortunately, at places like Harvard, the educated, vulnerable elite, who don't know the second law of thermodynamics, or people who work with their hands. So when I say working class people, I'm saying the mother is a working class person, okay? The entrepreneur who creates something. Person who moves around money all day, person who writes contracts all day, ah, they live in the world of the abstract. But people who work with hands, people who actually create things today, who are involved in closer to the mode of production, by and large, Merrill, you know, I find those people still have to live with the laws of nature and they have a common sense. And that's what's helping us still today. And that's who we need to go to. I call those working people. People who have to know that they have to put money on the table. If they don't have a job, if they don't do X, if they don't have customers, people who don't understand this live in la-la land. Most of them live over in California or in Hollywood or Malibu, okay? They don't have to live with the day-to-day -day realities of everyday people. 25% of the American people today are out of work, okay? In the last year, 600 billionaires increased their wealth by $2.3 trillion. Amazon was open, Walmart was open. The movement needs to move, if we're serious, the vaccine movement cannot be separated from the working class movements, if you're serious. Because what's really happening is big pharma is moving vast amounts of dollars from public infrastructure into their wallets. That's what's actually going on. In India, the Indian COVID, I have all the graphs, everything was going down, mm. vaccines coming up. People say, oh my God, the vaccine's shedding, da, 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 da. And then they start creating conspiracy theories. It's much simpler than that. Israel is partners with Pfizer. I don't know if you know that. Israel has now vaccinated their people about 70%. They gave data to Pfizer. So their goal, if you work out the numbers, and this is probably the most central thing here to understand, just take, take a little pen and paper. The, one of the major pharma research firms has predicted this year alone, the pharma companies will make $45 billion, $45 billion in from the COVID vaccine. So this is how they're getting that, okay? And I can tell you why they need, Fauci was on pushing 70% is what the vaccination numbers need to be. It's math, it's pure money. Because if you take, 
When I used to have sales guys, I used to tell them, go to two million in revenue, and I was happy if they got one, okay? So when you, the government, or the government's farm I want is telling people we need 70% vaccination rate. They'll be happy with 30. Let me tell, tell you what, what happens. If you take 7.2 billion people, 30% of that is what? 2.1 billion people. Right. The retail price of the two doses is $40, okay? Wow. 40 bucks. Pfizer will get $20, you know, after paying all their distributors. $20 into Pfizer's pocket or pharma, pharma pocket times 2.1 billion is there's your 40 billion. They're, this is sales. This and is a sales risk market. Free. It's risk-free because they are it's not, free. around the world, they've been indemnified. And, and I have to expand on what you said about working class because from my experience in Australia, which may be different than experience in the United States, COVID has been the great equalizer. And doctors and lawyers and stockbrokers, people who don't produce anything, um, are actually realizing that they are at as much risk from this as the farmers and the electricians and the plumbers are. So in that way, this might actually be a good thing. Uh, because it is letting well, people have no, but let, let me give you an example of why, you know, our goal in our movement is to focus on that sector because it's very simple, actually. You know, in the United States, there's truckers who move goods. Um, whether a lot of people don't know it, I thought the Teamsters ran all the unions. And the truckers, they only run 15%. The other 85% of the trucks that you see moving goods are independent small business families. Okay. Now, if those people understood these concepts and we struck, look, people used to strike between 1940 and 1975, nearly 100 to 200 million workers participated in strikes. Between 1975 to 2020, you know how many people participated in strikes? Two million people. Oh, yeah. Thanks to the liberal Democrat elites who struck deals with the right-wing big corporations. They work hand in hand. So they stopped people from striking. They, they struck agreements. Okay, backroom deals. Hey, what we saw in New Jersey, hey, Shiva's out there, Bobby Kennedy getting upset with me. Shiva's gonna hurt. That's what they do, Merrill. They do backroom deals. This is their thinking. We're lawyers. This guy shouldn't be out there. We shouldn't be building a box. They say boots on the ground, but they don't want boots on the ground. Not real boots. They do backroom deals. So between 1975 to 2018, we haven't had the labor movement. There is no labor movement globally. But if the Australian workers got these and they struck, that's political power. Yeah. That's how you bring the establishment to its knees. Not going and raising money for Children's Health Defense Fund to go do another lawsuit. Bullshit. That's not the wrong technique, Bobby. No. That's not what I'm building. Fundamental difference in principle. It's truly building a bottoms-up movement. So, yeah, fine, the lawyers are coming in. But you know what? There is going to be no change until working people, until teachers walk off their jobs, until let's say all the electricians are organized. We're not gonna do your, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not gonna fix your electrical systems. Network engineers strike. That's political power. And that's not gonna come from the white liberal elites who give money in Scarsdale and attack me when I start exposing the truth. That's the difference. It's not, those people may be in diametrically opposite camps. The working class movements from where I come from or where you come from, working people, are the ones that I'm focused on. Because those people still have to dig the ditches. Those people still make sure we get clean water. 
Those people make sure the internet's running, okay? Yeah. That's how we win. We have to organize people for, for mass movements. When I talk a mass movement, not just a million people showing up in Germany, I'm talking about working people, working people getting this. And that is, if you looked at the Egyptian rallies, remember Egypt that, many that years ago? Spring. Yep. Okay. Watch that movement. You will see Mubarak, who was the dictator of Egypt then, when the students were protesting and millions were showing up using social media, he let it go on. But in that movement, there was the point when the working people who were busy working, they have to run their shops, or they said, wait a minute, they shut down their businesses, Meryl. And when they came out into Trier Square, bang, Mubarak made one phone call to Vodafone and they shut down the whole internet. The danger is working people. And that is what our movement is singularly doing. And if people want to unify around that, great. But if people want to go play around and still think that something's going to happen over here, we're going to head into greater fascism. And we want to unify people around principles, not around people who say stuff. And then we absolve them for their actions. Uh-uh, we're not doing that. No more. How it's much time work. do we have? How much time do we have? It's not about time. It's not about time. It's like we're already in prison. You ever see the movie Great Escape? Everyone says, oh, my God, so this is the other way to not so Oh, my God, we got to do this. We got to file this lawsuit. You got to give me money. You got to fly me there. No, we're already in prison. We're already in prison. So we have to now become very deliberate about building a movement. We have to go back to basic science. We have to go back to principles. We haven't done this for 50 years. <clears throat> we've, been, we've been bamboozled by the Bernies and the Kennedys, and then the Trumps more recently, Ivanka and Jared, okay? We followed the billionaires on the east and west side of New York for way too long. We need to start following working people. We need to start following the sons and daughters of working people. And that's where I come from, and that's the simple, humble thing that I want to offer people. But if you do not get educated on these principles, you will surely be enslaved. Mm -hmm. And these principles are hard-earned principles. They're not something you just study, okay, I'm going to give money to Children's Health Assumption. I'm going to give money to Trump's campaign. I'm going to give a little money. No, it's all bullshit. That's, double, that's like the world of theater. So, But you hit a very important point. People need to recognize that those in power have made your lives so, quote-unquote, convenient, that you outsource your dignity, you outsource your activism, your responsibility to somebody else, and you think they're going to do it for you by just saying words not in deeds. It's deeds is what matters. And it's your deeds matter. It's not me. It's not some, it's you. Are you, do you want freedom? Do you want truth? Do you want help? And if you don't want it, it'll be more and more and more imprisonment. And those in power know this. Look, you've been, have you been to Africa, Meryl? Never. If you go to Africa, it's quite fascinating. I went once and you're out there and you're watching these animals, you know, you see monkeys and all these, and you say, wow, maybe whatever, X hundred thousand, or we were out there, right? We were living under trees with leeches on us and bugs, right? I mean, we learned how to live in that environment. Yeah. And now we live in a home with electricity. So when I was growing up in India, I, you know, in Bombay, I saw every sector of people, people on the streets in Armani jackets, riding Mercedes, you would see people with beggars, you would see people in slums. And what I realized was, wow, it seems like the human body and the mind can adapt to any different strata of living. Like we could live in a hut one day. You could live in the woods. You could live with nothing. You could live with just a stick or just with no, I mean, you could live it very, I mean, I've seen this. I think those in power know this. 
They know that people think, oh, you oppress people enough, they'll rise up. There used to be this political theory, and we talk about oppression does not necessarily lead to a revolution. Oppression leads to greater oppression. You basically lower your standards. Okay, I'm living in a one-bedroom house. Okay, I guess I can live just in the bathroom. It's like that Monty Python skit. Okay, I guess I'll just live in a paper bag. Okay, I'll live under the paper bag. The human being can keep lowering his standards. So, okay, I'll live out in the woods in a tree and I'll shit out there and I'll do whatever, right? That's what's happening in San Francisco, yeah. right? So those in power know that you can essentially keep lowering people's standards and people will accept it. So there has to be a point where you as a human being, whatever it takes you, say, you have a dignity for yourself. And if, you, if the dignity is, well, my life means so much, I'm just going to put my head in the sand and I'm, I'm happy to have my little garden, my little flowers, and I'm, I'm okay if there's all sorts of crap falling out of the sky. That's fine. That's one decision. The other decision is you want to change the world. Then you come to a crossroads where you have to decide how do you want to change it? Are there principles? Or are you going to just outsource it over there again and just be happy with good word? It's a laziness phenomenon. It is. But, yeah. Right. That's why I put my faith in working people. People get up. They don't go skiing in Aspen. They don't have a billion-dollar trust fund. It's not just a speech that they give. You see, it's not even them as bad or good people. It's the whole fiber of who they are. It's not real. It's the thing that they do, Meryl. And for working people, we need to educate people. And that's what we're doing in our movement, is that your economics as a human being are directly connected to these decisions. Massachusetts has an F minus minus in infrastructure. The United States has a D in infrastructure. How did we get all the gains of infectious disease improvement in the 1900s? It was infrastructure. Yeah. The United States gets a D in infrastructure, yet they're moving the entire public health discourse to vaccinating people, to putting a mask on. It's a reductionist model. If you really want to give a passport, let's give a passport. Let's, let's give passports based on people's vitamin D3 level. Let's give passports based on people's hip-to-waist ratio. Okay, you want to start talking about public health? Let's do that. Right? There's no money That's in that. The, <laughs> Not for pharma. Well, there's, money for working people. there's the money for working people. The average American worker today who's making 50K, 50,000, and I'm sure this is true in Australia, should be making 120,000. There's two American pies today. Mm. One American pie for the 5%, which is explosively growing with GDP growth, and the other is for the 95%, which is shrinking. Okay? This is a central economic issue. The Kennedys cannot talk to this because they profit from this. It is just theoretical for them. It's not real. It's a thing that they do to run a movement. And that's why I want to call upon people in this movement, in the quote unquote anti-vax movement, to break away from that old abusive relationship. It is an abusive relationship. If you keep thinking like a lot of the people in the United States were supporting Trump. In the talk, I said, look, you guys are in an abusive relationship. You have to look at what people's actions are. And you have to recognize one guy said lock her up, but the day he got in office, Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump met, and nothing happened. No one was locked up. We moved everyone to the Q plan, right? Trust the plan. There was no plan. The plan was to make sure that the American working class didn't rise up. That's what Trump did for four years. Kept them waiting and waiting and waiting, as though he was playing 19th dimensional chess. He was some brilliant maneuver. Nothing happened. We got John Bolton. We got Rex Tillerson. We had the biggest warmongers, right? That's what happened. And you had Operation Warp Speed, which essentially handed a gift to Big Pharma. That's what happened. 
So people need to pull their blinders off. You have to expose Trump. You have to expose the Kennedys. You have to expose all of them. And we have to realize it comes back to you. I love the fact that you're teaching people to be warriors because one thing that any mother of a vaccine-injured child becomes, whether they planned on it or not, is a warrior for their children. And I think we need a lot more warriors. I don't necessarily agree with what you said about the Kennedys, but I uh, love your forthright attitude, and I think it's something that we need a lot of. I will be referring everyone to your websites, and I'm personally going to take your course because I definitely yeah, want to learn it. that. Do <laughs> you mind if I show the website? And play, not at all. Play, not at all. Please do. Okay. So in closing, let me, let me just share it because this is important because I want to talk about the solution here. So people go to... Um, vashiva.com slash join. So right up here, you can see, this is our website. It's called Creating the Future. And when you click on join Dr. Shiva, yeah, VHD, I just switched. Can you see it? Yes, I can. It's on the screen now. Yeah, so this is the website. So we have, it says, get educator, be enslaved. It says, welcome to VHD, take your first step on your educational journey to truth. And I'll play the video before we end. Um, but people wanted to contribute. I say, if you want to contribute to me, then I want to give you educational tools. So this is how much we give people. So this is our, we give people 15 different gifts. Okay. We give the, and this is all in our infrastructure. They get this, um, hold on. They get this book. Okay. And I'll walk you through them. First, they get a whole bunch of videos, which were taken off YouTube on training people on vitamin D3. This is in our own infrastructure, Merrill. No one can take it off. Then they get this very important scientific paper, which links Eastern and Western medicine. Then they get three, four, and five, they get a three-hour course with me. We give them training. We certify people, okay? Then they get this classic book, System and Revolution, which will teach them an MIT course, literally, and they can read it on their own, okay? It's control okay. system theory. Then I give them gifts seven, eight, and nine, where they, you can apply these systems principles to your life, to, you know, to running a company, to actually understanding your body as a system. Then this took me about 20 years to build, but there's a piece of software I've created so they don't have to fly all the way to India um, to understand how their body is a system. They can literally understand um, what kind of system they are when their body is off course and how food supplements bring them back. Again, they get all of that. They get scientific papers on understanding how science is food, uh, food is medicine. And this is probably the most powerful thing. We've created an environment here where people can actually, um, we have two social media offerings. One is they, they have a forum and they also have a, a, uh, an equivalent to Facebook. And then we've created with our own branding, it's got Mass and Oral Health from Dr. Shiva. On the back of it, there's a, an, uh, there's a uh, these are the cards that they can give to people, Merrill, on all, and there's different solutions, moving beyond vax and anti-vax, clean elections. And this is how we educate people. So people can, and people can become a warrior, they can become a supporter, or they can just join as a member, okay? So we've literally created an educational institute for revolutionary change. Um, so that's, that's what, and so let me play this video. Ready? Yep, ready. I think you can hear it. Okay, here we go. We have allowed our country, end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you, deep down inside them, that you don't deserve the freedoms you have. They don't. This reality is what people need to wake up to, and we need to all unite working people. There's only one movement that can do that, and that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the movement for truth, freedom, and health. Look, I've been a student of politics since I was a four-year-old kid. 
studying revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There's a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equations. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom, and health leaders. We don't need followers like social media. We need leaders, but they, they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. We got to train people. First with understanding what a system is. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, right? Talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas, hypothesis into truth, which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up, working people, people who work united. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions with depressed workers, completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with as a part of this movement, we're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, you don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people. They have to go local, to go local, to go local. Fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, forget celebrities. You've got to learn politics, and there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is the not-so-obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. Well, the biggest disturbance is the not-so-obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you, on the left and the right, the Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you, the Tucker Carlson. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the, the left wing, Bernie Sanders, oh, he said something, or Robert Kennedy, scumbag. Or you're going to follow, you know, some right wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. And that political physics is the nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done, and it can only come when you weaponize yourself with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up, his own quote-unquote people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum. People can go to bashiva.com, and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics. And I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within half an hour, an hour, I can teach people. Two years of MIT control systems, I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it, anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I gotta build a bottoms up movement. They have to get politically astute, and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, be, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaigns expanded to the movement for truth, freedom, and health, and they can find it on Vias and Victor A. Shiva, vashiva.com.
so people can sign in. They can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to take a course and become a Truth Freedom Health Leader, I offer a full scholarship there. But we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to VA Shiva, Victory America Shiva, VAShiva.com. Anyway, Meryl. Oops, I can't hear you. Did I lose your sound? I yes, you did. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was muted for the video. Yeah, so we have a lot of people in Australia who come in, but our goal is to learn, teach, and serve. People can learn it. So now we're creating leaders who can also teach it. Um, but it's that model that's going to win it for us. We have to go back to fundamentals. We almost have to take people at the kindergarten level and bring them up to learn their chops. No different than learning the piano, don't, no different than learning. There is a physics here. Mm. And without that physics, movements are going to be misled and people lose another 20 years and another 20 years. That's really the urgency that people don't learn it and we end up in greater and greater darkness and fascism. Exactly. We will um, definitely link to both of your websites, and um, I want to thank you once again so much for joining us. Uh, I think it's so important that we are able to have conversations. And one thing, looking at the comments, I, I have to say something. In the last 20 years, it has become a case, and this is in the United States, this is in Australia, this is in Europe, this is in so many places, that we feel that we have to agree with everything someone says or we can't agree with anything. And I have learned a lot from you. I don't agree with everything that you've said, and I'm sure you don't agree with everything that I've said. And that's okay. We don't have to agree with everything. I have a lot to learn from you, and I think that the people who've watched this have learned a lot as well. And I very much appreciate your coming on the show. And uh, I hope that I can speak with you again. And maybe one day I can even travel back to the U.S. and see you. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. But anyway, Meryl, I think what you said is the most important thing. There needs to be this openness to have discourse mm -hmm. because it is out of discourse and debate. These are very, very powerful discussions that we just had. These are not, you know, and these discussions in the 1920s, I just want to emphasize people would have these kinds of political discourses. They would talk about Sincerely, how do you push a movement forward, right? Is there a science? Is there physics, right? You had anarcho-syndicalists, you had communists, you had, um, you know, fascism, and people would have these very important discourses. Um, and then they would go, it wasn't just scholarly armchair, then they would go act, do activism. They'd say, wait a minute, that didn't work, that worked. And they would do the lab, and they would do the physics, you know, the work. That's not happening anymore. We have a bunch of nonprofits which tell people what to do. So the problem that, uh, has happened is there has been no leadership. It's been the left and right, and some fringes of the left and the right and the pro and the anti. And it's a dialectic, yin and the yang. Nothing happens. We have to move to a systems approach because the systems approach will always lead you closer to understanding the real problem, your real solution. That's why people have to learn system science because it'll give them the tools. Without that, they will always be misled without an anchor. They won't have a North Star on how you even look at a problem. It's about thinking about the problem properly. Very important. Dr. Shiva, thank you once again. I really appreciate your spending so much time. 
And uh, as I said, I think we've all gotten an awful lot out of this, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you again, Mayor. You, you just did a great service by us having this discourse, and I hope this happened because that's how the movement's going to build. Thank you. Thank Be you. Be well. Yeah, take okay. care. Okay. Thank Bye -bye. you very much. Be well. Best to you and your family. Thank Bye -bye. you. See you.